Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with St. Louis-based trombonist and bandleader John Covelli of the Hardbop Messengers. He opened up about their 2022 Live at the Last Hotel CD. It's a jazz album that literally tells a story. It was born from a residency at the Real Last Hotel in downtown St. Louis. Each song paints a picture with bounce and bustle that takes the listener to a place and time that somehow feels both nostalgic and modern. John has played in dozens of bands over the years and learned just as many styles. His compositions are full of influences like Latin funk, chamber classical, soul, blues, and rock, and he hopes the result, as always, will get the audience tapping their toes and bobbing their heads along with every single song. Enjoy this story. Yeah, hey, John Cavelli, it's Joe Domino. Hey, Joe, how are you? What's up, man? How's life? Oh, life is good. Life is good. I just got good news that my my vinyl, uh, my records are ready for pickup, and I've been waiting and waiting and hoping, and uh, so you just kind of caught me on a, it's one of those roller coaster rides when you're doing all this yourself. Uh, as soon as he said they're ready for pickup, I, I texted my wife and I said, uh, we got to figure out how to drive to Kentucky. <laughs> Where are you at right now? Uh, we we're in. I'm in St. Louis. St. Louis guy. Uh, cool. I I was, um, you know, expecting the records to be done June, of course, end of May, and um, at that time I thought things were loose enough. I could probably, um, at any moment, drop what I'm doing and drive to to Kentucky and pick them up. And now things are tighter with the shows coming and all that. So, uh, but anyway, um, thanks for calling. Yeah, man. Thanks for reaching out. I'm so glad you heard the audio segment on the show. Typically I do interviews with most of the new musicians and groups out there that I haven't had on the show, but it's been so hectic. So I'm glad you sniffed it out and you're up for it. So it's good to catch up with you. Well, I appreciate it. I just, um, as I said, I was, sitting there with my wife and said, oh, this guy Joe played his played a song on, on his show, uh, and I pulled it up online, and, and what you said just really, like, knocked me out. So, And then I kind of forgot about it, and then I stumbled onto your Neon Jazz show and started listening to some segments and reading more about you, and, and that's what, you know, kind of made me think I could reach out. It's funny. It's kind of, it's kind of serendipitous. You know, you just got good news. Uh, and, and I'm calling you, but when you reached out to me and I read your email, I actually was on a in the middle or the first part of a rather lengthy road trip that I just got off of. We went up oh. to Pine, Colorado, to a wedding, and oh it was, wow, it was yeah, it was like a Hallmark Channel movie. So I read your email and I'm looking at these mountains and we're looking around and I'm like, wow. And you know, we ended up going from there to uh, Vegas. And then we went to San Diego, and I flew back from there. So um, the, the, the timing of your email, kind of being on vacation and disconnecting, that was a really welcome message. So, um, oh, that's neat. That's really cool. It was great. So I guess my question to you is, you know, how have you been doing now that the world's been waking up from COVID, and how did you survive that whole two-year period where live music crippled the jazz industry? Well, for me. Um, I I did something I've never done. I wrote an album. You know, I I had started um, I had started to think during our six month residency 
at the last hotel that, you know, if if the residency was going to keep up, I was going to record us every Friday night uh, and put out an album of us playing live. Um, but but playing the the stuff we had, you know, been playing, which is Horace Silver, Clifford Brown, you know, hard bop classics that really weren't being played around town and really were kind of like my favorite music I always wanted to play. And here I was, my first ever residency of my own. And so I was playing what I wanted us to play and and having a ball. And I'm like, God, I got to record these guys. Um, it's These guys are great. If I get a sub, he's equally as good. Like, this is fun. And then when the pandemic hit, I, I basically I had started already to write a song that reminded me of the lobby uh, of the hotel, and I kind of fashioned it around a, a well, sort of like Joy Spring, the the Clifford Brown tune, and and so um, I had you know written this song and and um, about a month within a month of the end of the gigs. Um, the guys in the band were like, let's play your song like everybody's doing those videos. You know, the everybody's at home in their basement videos. <laughs> you know, four four boxes on a screen or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so I, I we did it. We we played my composition. At, at that time, it didn't have lyrics yet, and we played it, and and the hotel loved it, so they posted it and we shared it and. And then it started to look like um, not only were things going to be shut down for a while, but my wife was starting to say stuff like, if you're going to sit there and pout and watch Netflix, um, you know, I'm I'm not going to tolerate that. <laughs> and I, I was like, okay, well, um, I had these musical ideas, and, and I, I just kind of started using my time to write. And I'd never really done that before. I never really had the confidence to do that. I never really had the time to just write music and not really worry about if it was going to be heard or not or or if anybody would like it. Um, as far as I could tell, nobody was going to hear this music ever because <laughs> the pandemic looked pretty bleak. Um, but within about six months, I had... I had at least eight songs written with the intent of painting a picture of the hotel or life in a hotel. Then I met my vocalist, Matt, and, and that's really when my brain went, exploded, because I realized um, all along I sort of had been making notes like um, character study notes, backstory. I had been writing down a lot of stuff in my spare time as if I was going to write a play. And, and so when I met Matt and we talked about vocal styles and jazz vocals in particular and how we both agreed that we didn't like certain styles and we did like other styles, I started writing lyrics for him to sing to go with the music I had written. I Then I knew I had an album to make and... Um, so then six months later, we, we went into the studio and recorded, and we did it all in two days, uh, and that was that. 
I love it how efficient you jazz musicians are when you get to the studio. It's like, you know, sometimes you'll hear how these big bands go in and it drags out for weeks and weeks. But you guys just sit yeah. there like ninjas and knock it out. <laughs> you know, I just heard someone talking about that um, on an, I think it was WTF podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jerry Harrison on uh, Mark Marin's podcast was talking about when they recorded... Um, Maybe it was Fear of Music, and in the same time, I think they did it in a week or two weeks, and and in in the same building was, I think, Aerosmith, and they bumped into each other, and it was like, yeah, we just made our album in, in two weeks, and they were like, oh, my God, it took us two weeks to do half of this one song. Um, like, it was just, you know, like, exactly what you said, it just, uh, you know, I wanted to make a Blue Note album, and that's how they did it, man, right? You know that. Like, they go, they have a day, and they cut four songs. The next day, they cut another four or whatever. Our constraints were not, for me, optimum. I didn't really, I wanted to have three full days. It turned into two and a half, and then really two because of a, an equipment error. Um, and I couldn't... Um, rehearse the guys it, because everybody's just so busy. So by, by that time, everybody was taking as many gigs as they could because at least in St. Louis, people were starting to be stupid and open back up. But all of us musicians were like, fuck, I'm playing. <laughs> right. Pardon my friend. Yeah. Um, no, are we, yeah. are you recording or I don't know how you're doing this, but are you just kind of soaking it in? Yeah, no, I'm recording. Yeah, it's all good. Okay, so you have to bleep that out. <laughs> I'll put um, a honk in there. I would like to, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, or like a tritone with a, a trumpet and tenor. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, so when I was like, okay, we're going to record in July. Who can rehearse in crickets? Nobody, you know. I couldn't, so no full band rehearsals. We get in there two days. I mean, so we'd rehearse a song we talk it through and we we do one or maybe two takes and then have to move on and me being a guy who hates the sound of his own playing it took me a couple of months after the session to of constant listening thinking how how am i going to how am i going to let this be put out cuz i just i'm terrible and it just took me that long to get over myself and realize that the playing on the album by the band was really special and that I couldn't keep that from coming out. And that so that won over. But I, di I didn't necessarily want it to be efficient. <laughs> I would have loved to have a week uh, and waste some more time. Yeah, well, and I know that it's about dollars and cents, too. A band like Aerosmith has all that disposable income. So that's, oh, I think that's yeah. one factor. You know? For sure. For sure. Um, and I, yeah, but, I mean, I, I had savings from a bonus that my wife said, you know, spend this on your album because I'm tired of hearing you complain that you don't have any like representative material. And so take this money and, and make your album, you know, kind of like, let's just get you to shut up <laughs> about it. And so I didn't have a lot of money and, um, you know, I got a really great deal uh, from this friend of mine who's a really great engineer. Um, on that side note, I, I asked Jack Bowers to do uh, a review, and I don't think it's published yet. I 
I but I got to see it and and that was the one bad mark um was the, the fidelity he didn't like the sound of the album he thought that really detracted and I thought well I mean that's not something that I can disagree with um but I really didn't have a choice I, I don't think I mean I think it came out sounding the way I wanted it to sound frankly but um I don't think you can please everybody. You can't, no, and that's why they're called critics. So, right, and I asked for it. I mean, I <laughs> I reached out to him and said, hey, can you write a review? You know, so, I mean, I asked for it, and I read his reviews, and he doesn't give, you know, a lot of high marks, you know. And so I, I just have to, I have to take all that with a grain of salt. I'm not used to being in this position, and um, it's a good learning experience for me. I'm growing up. What do you ultimately want the listeners to get from this album? The album tells a story, and I, I really, what I want most from from the listener is just that they'll listen to the whole to the whole album, and and to say all I want is this, and it's asking for the moon because today nobody has time to do this, you know, uh, to listen to every song in the order. Uh, that it's meant to be in, and read the liner notes, or in this case, the album you, or the CD or the or the record. You'll open it up; it's gatefold, and it has the story synopsis in it. Um, and the story synopsis, you know, tells the story that I'm trying to tell. And and so, really, if I could answer your question briefly, I would say all I want is for the listener to listen to the album. And, and get the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, and, and I hope they enjoy it along the way. I think it's a variety. We purposely made uh, a lot of the songs kind of short because of the vinyl constraints. Uh, you know, I knew I was kind of limited to 20 minutes per side for a vinyl record because um, any more than that, you lose guessable potential. And so with that in mind, I had... I had tight arrangements, and then I had two songs that are digital um, bonus tracks. Um, those are uh, one of them is kind of long, nine minutes. But um, you know, I just I think it's enjoyable music. I I I just um, really you know want people to listen and enjoy it. So you mentioned St. Louis. I'm curious. What's the scene like in St. Louis? And I guess even with that in mind, kind of where were you born and raised? And, and um, you know, how did you get to this point? Yeah, I was born in Peoria, Illinois, which is um, kind of halfway between here and Chicago. My dad was from Chicago. He settled in Peoria, met my mother. They were school teachers. We grew up. Uh, music was important. Um, education was important, and so when it came time to go to college, I was pretty stumped. I really didn't want to study anything but music, and I met a college rep uh, who was selling Webster University, and the selling point was that I didn't wouldn't have to take um, math and science anymore. <laughs> um, so I enrolled at Webster. That was 1983, and I got... I, got my bachelor's in four years and I did the graduate assistantship for two years. And and that's what brought me to St. Louis. And then I started playing in a rock band 
which got pretty popular, and that's how I met my wife. So, you know, I've been here ever since. Um, and um, let's see, what else did you ask? Um, well, I guess oh, what's oh, the scene, what the like? scene is like. Yeah, yeah, so the scene in St. Louis has changed since 1989, uh, as you can imagine. Um, the music scene in general has gone from cover bands and original bands in the late 80s, early 90s, um, to, um, you know, all the way through um, into where it was before the pandemic was is um, mostly cover bands. So the sort of the original music scene, I would I would say, uh, has has been squeezed or just kind of withered. I, uh, there are bands that play cover music, but uh, the people come out more for cover groups, and um, you know we're also such a big sports fan uh, base. You know, there's only so much attention that people have, and there's only so much money money they want to spend and time time away from their home. So, um, I, uh, you know, I I realize that people have a choice to do with, you know, the cho- how to spend their time, and I think, you know, right now, original music is probably not what people are going to gamble on as much as they are cover bands and sporting events. Um, with jazz in particular, um, there is an organization called the Kranzberg Foundation here in St. Louis, which which I feel like has kind of single-handedly created a powerhouse for all the arts, theater, visual art, jazz, and other types of music, and partnered with um, other organizations like Jazz St. Louis uh, to really create... Um, more of a thriving scene for jazz. And, um, you know, that's that was kind of what I wanted to be a part of after all these years playing music here in St. Louis for, you know, couple, three decades. Um, when my kids got old enough to do high school and college and stuff, and I, I could start spending more time out playing gigs or working on music stuff, I... I been playing in all kinds of different bands, but I really decided I wanted to put together a jazz group and and try and be a part of the music scene in a jazz way. And and that's when um, I formed the Heartbot Messengers in 2017. I was I was seeing that most jazz groups that you know were you know kind of incorporating fusion or electronic instruments or current um, music styles, um, and that's all. I, that's all lovely music. Um, but where my heart was was hard bop and acoustic instruments, and so that's been my mission. Um, the the top talent in town, you know, finding finding people that wanted to play this style, and um, and then trying to put together a five piece that was, of course, uh, economically. Um, challenging so i was only playing like three shows a week until the or i'm sorry <laughs> that would have been great three shows a year um until the residency happened and then we were every friday night which was a dream come true so what is it that you like the best about being a professional musician what motivates you the most you know i talked to my therapist a lot about that um frankly um 
as a child, I wanted to uh, please people. Um, my parents would have a living room full of people, and they would they would look at me and my brother and say, "It's it's time." And my brother hated that moment. Um, going to get his violin, he really did not enjoy playing his violin for the room full of people. Uh, I loved it. I couldn't get enough of that. You know, as I progressed through school band and high school band and um, and then playing in, in nightclubs as a teenager and um, just I really enjoyed the atmosphere of live music and playing music with other people um, and, and seeing people enjoy music. That's just what really um, motivated me and um, that's what kind of led me to choose hard bop because um, I would see that people really enjoyed these Horace Silver tunes. You know, they were really uh, funky, they were groovy, bluesy, fun to listen to, you know, not uh, not like late 60s where it gets a little free and, as my father-in-law would say, uh, lose the melody. Um, I kind of could see how an audience would be not comfortable um, with some of that. And I'm not discouraging any of it. I love free jazz. I, you know, I love a lot of styles, but when it came down to what I wanted to sort of fight for, it was music that made that um, music that the audience would enjoy uh, and that we would enjoy making so that like the, the equality statement, the equation, if it were math, it would be, Audience enjoyment equals musician enjoyment. And I think that's what we put together and um, and then proved it uh, in the laboratory, the last hotel lobby, you know, because we would watch people uh, come off the elevator, every intent of walking out the front door of the hotel, they would stop, look up, hear us play. They would walk over to the bar, have a drink, sit down for a while, tap their foot, I mean, I was just in heaven because I'm like, oh, my God, this works. <laughs> I'm not the only one who likes this music. Um, and that's, you know, that was a blessing. So speaking of live music, if you could get into a time machine and go back in time and see any jazz show live, where are you going? Who are you going to see? I'm going to see Wayne Shorter and Miles Davis, the quintet of the 60s, um, because... You know, that group was spontaneity, um, obviously, um, to the match. And Wayne Shorter is probably my favorite jazz composer um, and and who I aspire to improvise like. Um, you know, I just loved Wayne Shorter. Uh, and when, when I discovered that the studio albums of the Miles Davis Quartet were not indicative of the live performances of that quintet in terms of Wayne Shorter's playing. I was completely surprised that they hadn't released any of that stuff. And when they started releasing it, the Columbia Bootleg, uh, Columbia Bootleg series, um, you know, well, first, the, the first one was Live at the Plug Nickel, which was like a double record set that you get. Um, and this is back in the 80s. You could, you could buy that set. Once, you know, CDs were in full swing and, you know, the mid, when was that, mid-2000s, 
Columbia started releasing these sets, and I was just totally blown away at that live sound of that quintet. And so that's definitely where I would go. Uh, because as, as while I'm there, I'm probably going to bump into Coltrane and all these other guys, you know, who I would love to see as well. Now that, you know, COVID's kind of eased up a little bit, have you had shows and noticed that there's a difference with the audiences? For sure. I mean, I play in several other bands. One is a ska band, and one is a band I actually just stepped away from called the Grooveliner, a really great funky rock soul band. These are gigs where two years, three years ago, I would have, like, expected a packed house. Um, now it's just not like that, and I can't expect that. Uh, I can't assume that because the house isn't packed doesn't mean that we're not a draw. It's just people are people are still wary, um, and I don't know if COVID's over. I don't know if monkeypox is starting. Like, I... I just went to the grocery store last night and I saw that most people walking in the store had masks on. And I was like, Oh my gosh, are we, are we doing that again? Cause I thought it was over. And the first thing that hit me was, Oh my God, what if my shows get canceled <laughs> in 10 days? You know, these shows that I've been like going nuts to promote and get together, like anything can happen. Like, um, they could cancel the event if somebody got COVID or, you know, I don't know. So I don't know what to expect in gigs and crowds. I just think, sorry for the meandering here, but I think about it all the time. I, I think because my focus is always the audience and the attendance, I'm always keying in on who's at the show and I'm watching them. Are they enjoying this music? In a packed show in the old days, you could tell right away if they liked it or not. If, if they're moving, they are liking it. If they're just standing and staring, they might not be enjoying it on the gut level. Now, you really can't tell as much because it's not packed. They're spread out. They're not interacting with one another. You know, they're not sharing that physical sense of... of uh, being right next to someone experiencing that music and processing it in their body, they're spread out, and that spreads, that dissipates the vibe, I think. And I'm sensitive to that and try not to be because that could just be the future. Um, and, heck, some someday we might all be just holographic um, projections in everybody's living room. There might not be any... Um, of what I've been talking about, where the crowd is is there and sweating and yelling and feeling it, you know. Let's say you have a dream tonight and you run into a younger version of yourself, maybe in your 20s, mm. um, and you could give your younger version one piece of advice based on the wisdom that you've gained over all these years. What would oh, you tell your younger version? Oh, yeah, man. Um, I, <laughs> Definitely another topic uh, I was just discussing with my therapist. I mean, literally, this passion for music that I have is has been a life thing. And I haven't really, you know, people would say in college, you know, enjoy the process. And I'd be like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I would try to, <laughs> I would try and explain that 
differently to my young to the younger version of myself because it didn't get through in those words. Um, I think <clears throat> what I would say is you have a gift that sorry um, you have a gift that a lot of people wish they had. Think about what good you can bring and not about what is missing, um, what you think you should have and you don't have. Focus on what productive things you can do with the gift. Um, isolate the issues that you want to work out specifically. That's some, And then work on them. That is something I didn't know until much later in life when I started teaching trombone lessons was I never knew how to practice my horn. I just, I hated the isolation of it. Um, I hated being by myself to practice my trombone. So I always played along with records and I closed my eyes and I imagined that I was in Maynard Ferguson's band um, or Bill Watrous's band. Um, I mean, I would go back to that younger version of myself and say, you know, you need to practice. I know you don't know what to practice. Just find find a thing that you are not doing to to up to your own standards and and list it down and then practice it a little bit every day over and over and and you'll get better and just that's it's that simple um I made it so difficult when I was young because um, I was worried about all these things um and the worry didn't get me anywhere. Um, you know, the worry just made me unhappy along the way and feeling like I was less than. And the thing is, to to the average music listener, they don't know any of that. They love music. They can't do music. They don't understand music. They just hear it, and it makes them feel good. So... Just make people feel good. That's, you know, it's it's so simple. And, um, you know, that, that's what I would say. I've been encouraged lately to, to do that, actually to say that to that person um, because that person is still there. And sometimes um, that person needs to be honored but um, isn't isn't in charge anymore. The adult John is in charge and can do things about the situation in a productive way. And so that's that's just what I'm like finally learning. <laughs> Fifty seven cool. years old. <laughs> I get it. Believe me. There's things that just take a while. I don't know that it, we should feel bad about it. I think it's the process of life. It's probably just proof that we don't have enough time. That's right. That's right. I just heard an economist yesterday talking about this, the, the becoming, uh, becoming something um, over a lifetime. And if you just, this is what I would say to that person. I would just say, think of what you want to become and then just, just work at becoming that. Uh, and you'll never get there. And just accept that. Um, they were talking about... Um, a lot of things in this show. It's a podcast I listen to a lot. But, um, you know, the becoming of, of a human 
uh, is 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 so much more um, productive than um, not trying. I guess was the point. And um, you know, as humans, we're hopefully just trying to become something, and we're never quite there. So everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are? Well, that has changed um, a lot uh, because of this album. And I wish I could say it came from within, but it, it has come from people's reactions. Um, I've seen people on the scene that that heard I, was, I had made a record, and they're like, dude, that is really something. And And I had to, like... I had to realize that my kids and my my wife, um, <clears throat> you know, they they think the same of me. Like I'm I'm an, a really great guy. I've always seen myself as a good person, but trying to figure out what I wasn't doing right to be better. Um, and now, um, you know, I uh, well. So for an example, I met with two choreographers who want to we're going to choreograph the entire album and perform it live on stage with the musical group and we we tested this at Washington University the head of the department choreographed two selections and did it in his spring show and it worked it worked really really well and in the program I'll try to say this without crying. <laughs> um, in the program, I was listed as the um, guest composer. I hadn't considered that yet, that I was a composer. And so I saw that, and I thought, well, this I'm a composer. Of course, <clears throat> you know, someone might say, well, don't let this world define you. You define yourself. Um, but I can't. I cannot downplay the feeling I got when I saw in the program me and the little biography as the guest composer. And now he and another person are teaming up to do the whole album. So, like, it it must be good. <laughs> it must be good enough, you know, that they would want to focus on this for what's probably going to be a year and a half. Gosh, you know, you're, I, I feel like I'm not even answering your question because it's, maybe so hard to answer for me. Um, ask it again and, and let me... Well, let me. Well, no, no, I, I think sometimes this turns into a PhD kind of dissertation oh, sure. thought, sure. but it's not. Sure, sure. You answered it. And I think okay. the, the, I think what I've noticed with this question, the, the brevity of it is the most powerful part of it. So you totally yeah. answered it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and it's... I, I, this is the last, it was the last question. I saved the hardest for last. So, John, thank you for opening up. Thank you for reaching out to me. It's been great to have you on the show. I look forward to having you on more. So, thanks and good luck with everything. Joe, it's been my honor. Thank you so much for, for, uh, for letting me come on. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Chaz interview. We give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in St. Louis, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to John for his time, music, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for all things Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. And finally, you can go to JoeDomino.com and kick in. Help out a little bit via Patreon or PayPal. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
Neon Jazz.